Thank you for listening to Truth in Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church because we believe that God's Word is truth and that His truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. Well, welcome everyone. This is um, the first module, the first uh, week in the fourth module. Is that the way this works? So welcome. We'll be together for the next few weeks. I'm going to ask Wade, would you please stand and with a loud voice because this room's a little bit echoey, pray for us. Thank you. Amen. Okay, so if I am looking at the, the flow of things correctly, you have just spent the last number of weeks, the past module that you're in, studying, by and large, the, what, we, what we call, or some people call in, in theological terms, the ordo salutis. Is that where you've come from? Yes. Where you talk about the Holy Spirit and His work in the life of a believer? talk about election, adoption, regeneration, and all those different topics that, that the Holy Spirit is w- working amongst in our, in our hearts, in our minds, uh, through the process of coming to faith and the process of, of sanctification. So that's where you've been. But in the Bible, there is more to salvation than just the things that are happening internally in the heart and in the mind of a believer. There's more going on. That is, that is, that is, the, that is the epicenter of what's going on. Those things, everything, you know, the Bible says, out of the heart the mouth speaks. So out of our hearts emanate all things in our lives. That's a biblical reality. And yet salvation, even though it has to start in our hearts, it can't start by going to church, even though it starts in our hearts, salvation encompasses more things than just the work that the Holy Spirit does internally. Here's what I mean by that. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Ephesians, he says to the elders, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Be careful, be on guard as you shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus died for the church. And you've been learning about how the Holy Spirit works in an individual believer's heart and mind. But Jesus died for the church. He purchased the church with his own blood. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Not for you and you and you and you and you. Yes, for you personally, but he gave his life up for the church. He died for a people, a body, a bride, a royal priesthood. And so we see that throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God doesn't just deal with individuals. Yes, God does deal with individuals, but by and large, God deals with people. You think that he came to a head of a household and he collected that household And over time, that household grew with 
Noah, you could say, and then Abraham, and then Isaac and Jacob. And it's sort of like dragging a big rake in the yard around this time of year. And that rake, all those tongues just keep collecting more and more and more. And all of a sudden, you've got this massive pile you're dragging along with you. I don't know if that analogy works with you, but you can tell what I've been doing over the last couple of weeks, right? It's like a, a dragnet, you know, if you're a, a fisher. And you start dragging, it just starts collecting and collecting and collecting. That's, that's the story of, or that's, that's the way we see God working throughout the Bible. It starts fairly small in the beginning, but then over the course of the history of redemption, which takes place over time, it just drags and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It, it grows. It grows into a nation. Through expansion and growth, this household became first a nation with Israel. And in the New Testament, this nation of holy people is the church of Jesus Christ. All right? This is a bigger group than I had last time. Yeah, welcome. Hello, everyone. Welcome. I don't know if there are outlines, but okay, it looks like there are. Welcome. So we're talking about the church, all right, in this module. This, is, uh, this module is called Life in His Body. And so, whereas in the last module you thought about the Holy Spirit's work in your own individual mind and heart, in this module we're going to be considering what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. You aren't just saved and you, you, you operate on your own. You're part of a church. You're, when, you, when you profess faith, you should join and come into the church. So what's life in his body all about? Well, this morning we're going to think broadly about the nature of the church. And then in future weeks, we're going to look at topics such as um, the sacraments. We're going to talk about gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, um, as well as um, the fruits of the Spirit. We're going to think about worship. We're going to think about um, the authority of the church and, and things like discipline. So uh, that's sort of a, a very quick view of what we're going to be covering in the weeks ahead. But today, as we start thinking about the church, we're just going to start with some very foundational thoughts about the nature of the church, the purpose of the church. And we're living in a very, I'd say, interesting time as it relates to the church. Because you and I have come through probably one of the strangest phenomenon that has at least happened in our life yet. As, and, and that is this, and listen, I don't care to even... Menopause. <laughs> Menopause. Yeah, that's right. I didn't want to say it. There was a, no, I don't want to say it, but you know, I've heard so much about COVID, but we've just come through this thing and, and it's affected the church in different ways. One of the things I heard over the course of the past couple of years, and I saw it lived out before my very eyes, as I'm sure you did too, is I heard this. I heard someone say, crisis, crises serve as great accelerators. You know, somebody said that and I was like, what does that mean? You know? But then we saw that lived out before our very eyes in very, in very practical ways. So what are some of the ways you saw things accelerate due to crisis? It doesn't have to relate to the church. I'm just saying in general here. Coalescing of moral authority. Uh, 
Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yep. What else? <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So it stirred up all sorts of fear into a fear cloud. You know, the dust that laid on the ground is now going into your nostrils. Okay, yeah, what, what else? So I saw somebody over here. Yes, Charles. Parker. People were moving towards more remote work. Yeah. Oh my, it's like, you know, you talk with people now and if remote work isn't an option, it's like, <laughs> hello, <laughs> you know, how did that happen? Yeah, okay. What happened to the churches, like a lot of, you know, they were empty and then a lot of them just haven't, people just haven't gone back. Yeah, so as it relates to the church, were you going to add something to that? Okay, all right, okay. Um, as it relates to the church, one of the things that, we have seen very sadly is we've seen the demo the closing of many many churches the shutting down of many churches churches that still had services that sadly are are, are non-existent today um you know i i feel like um you know you know it, it it's called a scythe right the the little thing that the grim reaper holds that you you know you cut wheat down with um, when I bought my new house this past year, there's a scythe in my shed, which the kids love playing with. And, and uh, I, you know, I, I feel like COVID served as sort of a, a scythe in the American church that exposed a lot of things really quickly. Like, it, it, you know, it sort of separates the wheat and the chaff, too. Like, it shows, and I'm not saying that's all bad, actually. It's hard, and it's sad, but it's not, it's not all bad. God purifying his church is a good thing. Um, um, <clears throat> COVID did not cause bad health in the church. It revealed it. It served to reveal in a very quick way the weakness of the American church, right? Something that looked strong and firm just suddenly got went, you know, and totally deflated. And I'm not speaking of every church here, but I'm speaking of the church in general. And that's a sad thing. As Christians, we should both lament that and seek to, seek to change that. And that's part of what we are trying to do here as a church. But we should also not just lament it. We should also see God's sovereignty in it and trust him that he's through this process of sifting and pruning that it's purifying. So we should think on both those planes. Okay? You with me? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, <clears throat> My uncle recently wrote a book on the church, and in the introduction, he quotes my grandfather, who I never knew, died in, in 85. And in the year that he died, he, for many years, wrote um, for a column in a magazine that is no longer around called Eternity Magazine. And for many years, he, he wrote a monthly column in that. In 85, one of the months in that year, he wrote a piece titled The End of an Era. And this little section, this, this series of quotations from my grandfather is in the beginning of my uncle's book. So I don't know how you footnote that, but like hopscotch, you know. Uh, <clears throat> he says, my grandfather said, we inherited, he's speaking about the nature of the church in America. We inherited three or four small independent sem um, seminaries. I, I was honestly 
voice detecting this because I didn't want to spend cemeteries. <laughs> cemeteries. We inherited <laughs> Freudian slip. Well, yeah. We inherited three or four small independent seminaries. We bequeathed nine or ten healthy institutions that are major sources of training in the, uh, for evangelical leadership for America's churches and for parachurch movements. We inherited one national youth movement, Christian Endeavor, working through the local church. Parachurch youth organizations we have founded include Youth for Christ, Young Life, University Christian Fellowship, and Campus Crusade for Christ. We inherited denominational church-centered programs for children, youth, and adults. We bequeathed, we gave, uh, children, ch ch Child Evangelism Fellowship. These are all specific organizations, some of which aren't around anymore, I don't think. Christian Service Brigade, Pioneer Ministries, Christian Business Men's Committee, Bible Study Fellowship, back there, Bible Study Fellowship, Neighborhood Bible Studies, Christian Medical Society and Christian Legal Society and Nurses Christian Fellowship and many other parachurch programs. We inherited Christians who were loyal to the church. We bequeathed Christians that were loyal to many religious organizations in addition to and often in preference over the local church. That was my grandfather's view of what we had done um, and that was nearly 40 years ago. That was the trend he was seeing nearly 40 years ago. So how do you think people view the church today? I, just, that's not rhetorical. I, I'll take a couple, couple hands. By and large, I'm not asking how do you or how should you, but I'm speaking in general. How do you think people view the church today? What's, what's the purpose? It's, um, it's about us. So it's how the church functions in the Okay, <clears throat> so she's saying it's, it's based on felt needs, like, hey, we're a service provider. I'm, I'm speaking in a negative way. Yeah, okay, yeah, thanks for clarifying. But it's about, you know, what, what do you need? Here we are, we'll try and, you know, and so the best churches are the ones that are able to touch as many felt needs and keep it all together as, as possible. Okay. Well, <laughs> yes. I will say, I don't necessarily... I'm not totally opposed to that, but I mean, you know, what? I, I think that there, there's good and bad there, but yes, I, I understand what you're saying. Really? See which way I vote. Oh, sorry, sorry. I'm sure they have really good reasons for saying that. I'm sure you do. Well, yeah. uh, the parachurch historically came out of really a need. The churches weren't doing their job. Okay. And yet, Mm -hmm. So you join it, and so every and I think regarding churches today, it's just oh, it's it's like parachurch or anything else, whether you join or not. There's no authority in it. Yeah. Okay. We're it's devoid of all authority. We're going to talk about that because in a few moments, what we're going to do is we're actually going to look at the the word church. We're going to start pretty basic, and we're going to expand on that in future weeks. But um, but we're going to talk about. The Bible actually talks about the word church in five different types of ways. 
five different aspects, five different terms. They use church for all of them, but they are referencing slightly different things. Today, we're going to actually spend some time looking at those five things. Yes. Okay. Okay, yeah. Okay, yes. Yep, yep. Uh, yes. Out. <laughs> yeah, irrelevant. Right. <laughs> so by and large, oh, by and large, um, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think that right now, as far as I can tell, we're in an era that actually, you know, I think in the early 2000s, you know, the culture is weird, you know, so the early 2000s, you know, uh, we're not your grandmother's church, guitars, fog machines, like that is, that's definitely dated at this point, right, and they've moved on, but by and large, culture is pagan and, and godless, and so, yeah, they're, they're, and, and things like COVID have served to accelerate the idea that it's, it, <laughs> it's, 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 it's vain, it's empty, it's powerless. Now, we know it's not. Uh, we know that the church is not. And hopefully, as we think about what the Bible says, that will be underscored. All right, anybody from this side want to say anything? They're, they're very outward-focused to the point where they lose, like, caring about their body. Okay. Does that make sense? Uh, uh, yes. The, the, they take the Great Commission, which is the task of the church. We're not going to actually talk so much about the, the, the task today. But, and that is the thing. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's a, a very well-known church that was pushing their slogan, not around here, but it, what they were saying, as soon as you're a Christian, this isn't your church anymore. And of course, my question was, are you asking them to leave? <laughs> Are you asking them to stop giving to the church? No! <laughs> you know? But the church, what they mean by that is worship on Sunday isn't for you, you know, and they're saying you get that in other ways, you know. But, okay, so that's highlighting kind of that. There's many thoughts on the church out there, but I think we've done a good job of at least throwing darts and hitting some of the big areas, the big things that people would say. All right, any questions thus far? Okay. Oh, yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> regardless of what culture thinks about the church, regardless of how many churches close their doors every year, and I looked it up, but I hate data like that, honestly. I don't put, I mean, it's, it's true, data's good, but it's like, I'm not, I don't love Gallup, says this, you know, whatever. But it's thousands of churches that are closing every year. And, of course, you have stats that say, well, you have how many thousands of church plants that are starting. But, of course, is a church plant that may open their doors actually a, a church that actually ever takes off? There's a disparity there. You guys understand that? The church 
in terms of numbers is not healthy in America. It's not thriving. It's, it is, Octavio said, you know, they don't even see a point in it anymore. And I think the number of churches that are shutting down or turning into nonprofit, like venue, like share and share alike entities instead of being churches points to that fact. You guys, you guys with me? Can you hear okay? Okay. Um, <clears throat> though that may be true, though that may be true, the truth is that the church, the bride of Christ, is the hope of the nations. So that while we may look out and see, oh, weakness and, you know, things that cause us pain, the reality is the Bible teaches that the church, this institution, not just this, but the capital C church, is the hope of the nations. It is the city on the hill. It is the body of all the faithful. It is the institution that Jesus said, it's better that I leave you and I send the Holy Spirit to you. You'll accomplish greater things than if I was to stay here in physical bodily form and continue earthly ministry. That is the church. And so while we may want to throw up our hands and say, oh, and while there are churches that misrepresent Scripture and are painful for us to, to hear about, the church, God's church, Christ, the bride of Christ, is powerful and glorious and a tool of magnificent godly authority. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And it's not dying. Huh? Salt? It's salt. Yeah, it's salt. Yeah. Um, it is vital that we maintain and teach and pass on to our children, but not just to our children, but to those that come into this church from, from outside, a correct biblical understanding of what the nature and the work of the church is. We have to instruct ourselves and our children and our friends in what the nature and the work of the church is. And I'm going to tell you, when I started thinking about this, I was going to hit both of them. But by the end of it, I thought, you know, it's only 45 minutes. I'm going to talk about the nature of the church because the work of the church uh, is something that we can dabble, uh, that we can sort of dive into a little bit week to week. We're going to be touching a lot of things that play into the work of the church. Does that make sense? You with me? Okay. So in the English language, bear with me here. I, I like talking, but I had to write some of this stuff out for the sake of time and for clarity. Uh, <clears throat> In the English language, our word church is a religious word, isn't it? You ever hear people talking about church in a way that's not religious? Never, right? Um, it always is a, it's a religious word. In the Bible, ecclesia or ecclesia or however you choose to pronounce that word. How many of you have heard that word before? Most of us. That is the word that we get our word church from, that it's derived from that word. That word, ecclesia, is used over a hundred times, and the word is not uniquely religious in nature at all. So there's a big difference there, isn't there? You know, you hear church, and you think, okay, worship, service. In the New Testament, when the authors, when Jesus says ecclesia, or when Paul writes that in his epistles, He's using a term that is, you know, I don't know. I was at a, I was at a, a 
what was that place called? A, 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 a veterans lounge or something last night for a gather? Eagles club? I, I can't, I, moose, I have no idea. I don't remember what it was. All I remember is there were men dressed up like Santa Claus standing outside. They were ta- it had the sense of a gathering of people, right? An assembly. In the Bible, the term ecclesia means more or less an assembly. And the noun is constructed by compressing the preposition ek, meaning out of, with the verb kaleo, meaning to call. So, so sometimes, I think it's actually helpful to, you can think of the church as being the called out ones, which makes sense, right? You're called out from the world. But in, in, in Greek, it just means an assembly. And we're going we're gonna to look at Acts 19 right now. In Acts 19, we find the term you, ecclesia, to signify the city council where the town clerk of Ephesus addresses the citizens of that town. So, not churchy. Not churchy. This is, a ta- this is the, 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 the town clerk. And he says, If Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open, and there are deputies. Let them ask of them. But if you inquire concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful convention, in a lawful gathering. And the ecclesia is the term that's used, right? So it would be church in a church. Okay. It's also used a couple more times later in that same chapter, again, Acts 19, when it said in regard to a mob that assaulted Paul and his companions, some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused. But the church was confused. Now, that doesn't make sense, but that's because our notion of church only applies to certain things. Okay, so with this wide use of the term as applied to secular assemblies, secular gatherings, things that aren't just religious, it is plain that the, persp- the, that the precise signification of that word, ecclesia, in any given instance is to be gathered from the manner in which it is employed and from the context. You understand? We, we, have to, we have to do some thinking about the context that that word is being used in to determine what is being referenced. Okay? The same is true with regard to the term when applied to the church, to ecclesiastical assemblies. Here, too, the range of its application is a wide one. And the precise meaning of the word in any particular case must be ascertained from the general sense of the passage and from the context. So, what does this mean? I don't get you, Nathan. Well, what I'm saying is this in, just like the term is used in in secular ways throughout the Bible, and you have to sort of see the context to deduce what that ecclesia is, is, is meaning, when it's talking about Christian assemblies, religious assemblies, we have to do some thinking. We can't just read each and every ecclesia with the same idea. The scripture teaches us, okay, here's where I'm going. The scripture teaches us about the nature of the church by using that word in five different ways. And I want to walk us through those five different ways because I think it's, it's going to help us get a bigger view of what the church is all about. That's my hope. All right? We have to look at the context when this word is used. That's basically what I'm trying to build to. So we're going to go through five different ways, and they are laid out on your paper. Actually, I've, I gave them to you. They're right there. 
you're dismissed. <laughs> no. um, that's in case I don't get done in time. <laughs> that's self-study right there. <laughs> um, so we're going to start right up at the top. When applied, five different ways, this word is applied to religious types of ceremonies in the Bible. We're going to walk through them. The word church, number one, signifies the whole body of the faithful, whether in heaven or on earth, who have been or shall be spiritually united to Christ as their Savior. Do you guys understand what that sentence means? Invisible church? You're saying, or shall be? Okay, yes. So, there are many examples of, in Scripture, of the use of this term in a very wide sense. The first occasion that I'd point out to you occurs in the New Testament. I think I gave you the reference, Matthew. Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and did not, blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, ecclesia, right? And the gates of hell, or the gates of Hades, will not overpower it. Remember, earlier I said, for as bleak as sometimes the church looks, remember that the Bible teaches us that the church is not weak. The bride of Christ is not weak. Christ is supplying strength to her. In this passage, it's saying, it's not just saying that, like, <laughs> you're not going to be overpowered. It's saying the gates of hell, the gates of Hades will not overpower you. That's a... That's an advance, right? The church is advancing. It's not just in a siege and holding out. You understand what Jesus is saying here? Yeah, yeah. It's like you're at the gates of Mordor or something. Yeah. Right. 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 And when Jesus uses that term, the, the gates, uh, I will build my church, he's speaking of this long range, past, present, future, capital C, universal church, right? There are churches that die, right? There are churches that are overpowered with sin and are torn apart, ravaged by sin. So is Jesus lying? No. He's speaking about a church that's bigger and more glorious than in any one congregation. Another spot where such a term church is used in this universal way is Paul in Ephesians when he's comparing marriage to Christ with his bride. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also Loved the church and gave himself up for her to sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she'd be holy and blameless. Now we know, like we just said, and history proves that there are churches that fall away. There are churches that are ravaged by heresy. There are churches that go apostate. So these passages are not referencing any or all specific churches that are visible to our eye. But rather, Jesus is talking about 
the invisible church, the universal church. And if you haven't heard that term, invisible church, are you thinking, whoa, like, what is that? I mean, is, this, is this some funky cult where we believe the church? No, the invisible church is a term that's used in theology to designate the idea of all believers, past, present, and future, who are truly united to Christ. And we don't know. You understand? There are those here, we're going to talk about this in a minute, that are in a visible church that show up here on Sundays that we can see with our eyes, but they may not be truly united to Christ. That's why in theology, we believe that there's, these, there's an invisible church and that there's a visible church, right? Paul says not all Israel, not all the Israelites in the Old Testament were truly Israelites, even though they might have even been circumcised. Are you with me? Amelia? Are you with me? You tracking? Okay. I like picking on the younger crowd. You guys are going to find that out. Stella was my whipping child last time around. Stella Clark. I love her. She's just, she's great. Whipping child may not be the most appropriate. <laughs> Scratch that from the, pa- the podcast. Do not put that on iTunes. <laughs> okay. All right, um, okay, so now we're moving on to the second term. The second term, number two, B, okay? The term church is, uh, is made use of in Scripture to denote the whole body throughout the world of those that outwardly, visibly, profess faith in Christ. You could say, if I was to summarize this, you could say those that profess Jesus Christ who have been baptized and who go to a local church right? Let's go to church on Sunday. Not just going to church, professing faith and being baptized like the scripture instructs, but going to church on Sunday. Um, In addition to the unseen society consisting of all those who are elect, the scripture presents another society that is external, that stands before the visible eyes of the world. This is the visible church and its members are known to others by, okay, outward profession of faith. Okay, I wrote this, and I already said it, so we're just going to skip it. Um, <clears throat> you know what? I've only got 10 minutes. We're going to, we are, let's see here. Did I give you a proof text for that? Um, yeah, Acts 2.47, right. Um, this outward society of professing Christians is spoken of throughout the New Testament when, when they use the term church. So in Acts... We're told at various points, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And we know that at points, we're told that thousands were coming into the church in a single day. And actually, thousands of just men. And so we have to extrapolate from that and say even more were coming in through their families, right? So we have a second use of the word ecclesia that actually means those that are actually coming and showing up and saying, hey, I want this. I'm professing this. Often it indicates that they are part of the invisible church. Not always. Okay, number three. The term church is frequently employed in the scripture to denote the body of believers in any particular place associated together in the worship of God. So if I was to say, what is this? And how is this different than number two? Well, what I would say is, um, I think of this as just Christians gathering together. You know, you could say small groups. You could say, and here's why I say that. 
And I'd, these, this isn't just me. I've done a lot of reading and thinking about this, so I'm not just, this isn't my own thoughts necessarily. I agree with it, and I see it in the scripture. Um, in the Acts of the Apostles, we're told that Paul and Barnabas ordained elders in every church as they journeyed through Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. Um, language that plainly recognizes that the congregations of profess, uh, professing believers in those cities were churches before they actually had any structure to them. Do you follow my logic there? So Paul is going around, visiting different cities, and, and giving form to what he's already seeing as a church. There's a gathering of Christians, and he's saying, okay, now here's, here's this structure, here's this form, here's this governance, but he isn't calling them something different. He's saying there's a church here. We see this when we talk about... Um, yeah, okay, I, I, I have it down. This is, um, this is Romans 16. The Apostle Paul speaks at various times about the church in ways such as this. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, um, to whom not only do I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles. Then he says in verse 5, also greet the church that is in their house. Right, so there's this gathering of believers that is in these people's home, that he references as a church. Now, you get into problems, and we can talk, well, we may be able to talk about their, their well, I'll, I'll, I'll save it for a few moments from now. Let's get through all five. Let's keep going. So the, the first one is the invisible church. The second one is the visible church. The third use of ecclesia in the Bible has reference to the men's camping canoe trip up in Grayling when we're all gathered around singing and, and reading the word together. Okay? You with me? You with me? Uh, the fourth use of the term church is applied in the New Testament to a number of congregations associated together under a common government. What do I mean by this? How is this different? Well, the first sense of the word church use of the word church is the, the, the universal. The second is a particular. The third is Christian gatherings. The fourth is the church in Jerusalem. Well, we already said that in the book of Acts, thousands are, are coming to faith. Do you think that all of those Christians were in one place, in one, time, in one local church? No. Think about that. No, no that's not the case. It wasn't like Jerusalem had the megachurch of megachurches and it was the church of Jerusalem. There were many congregations, but Paul talks of the church in Jerusalem, the church in Toledo, right? The, the church in America. That is a way in which the scripture uses the word church. And because it uses it in that way, we are to learn something from it. Right? We're trying to, what is the church? How does the Bible speak about what the church is? Okay. <clears throat> Let's skip to the fifth. Um, the word church is applied in the New Testament to the body of professing believers in any place as represented by their rulers or office bearers. What do I mean by this? Well, at various points, those leading in the church are referred to as the church. 
this principle is frequently seen in scripture and in just the, the world. We refer to our leaders often by, we refer to the whole by our leaders. Does that make sense? I'll give you one example. Uh, did I write it down? Matthew. Yeah, this is a great example. Um, in Matthew 18, what, are we, what is Matthew 18 about? Matthew 18 is one of those verses we should have in our minds as Christians. Okay, church discipline, uh, yes, yeah, you're right. But, but it's also, before it gets to the point of discipline, it's, it's the way in which we should go about repentance, right? So church discipline may be an outcome, but Matthew 18 talks about offense and repentance and forgiveness. And this is important, because why? We're all sinners, right? So we need, to, we need to be familiar with this process. But there's a process given, and it's, you know, if someone sins against you, go to him, you know, to take two people, if he won't listen, it, and it ratchets up, you know, and the end is, okay, if he still will not listen, go, and the words are, tell it to the church, right? It should be told to the church. That's the word used, ecclesia. It should be told to the church. Now, does that mean that every sin issue, Paul is supposed to start writing letters to every church he started and literally tell it to the church? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's referring to those that lead in the church. Are you with me on that? I need a little bit more feedback. I mean, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, Christ referred to, when Jesus says this in Matthew 18, he's referring to the synagogue court known and established amongst the Jews. Which probably comes from what? If you know the Old Testament. Moses, right? Remember? Judgments, setting up judges for God's people. He's, he's referencing the synagogue court um, and uh, which had elders and officers for the decision of such matters as discipline. And in the expression, he should tell it to the church, he makes use of, um, uh, he, he, he's assuming that those that heard him would understand that by saying, tell it to the church, he's referring to the authorized rulers, not to just the church in general, which I've already said. So, the word church in scripture, among its many other meanings, is employed to denote the rulers or the office bearers in a Christian institution. So those are the five, the five ways, the five uses of the term church in the Bible. And I know we've kind of flown through them. We could talk a lot. I, there's a lot more words here than what I've said. If you do have questions, I'm happy to talk with you about it. But so what? Why does this matter? Okay. Um, I hate when this happens. Sometimes it just shuts down. Um, <clears throat> why do we take the time to go through these five uses? Here's why. As we think about what the church is, we need to have a biblical definition to start with. And the church is all of these five things at the same time, always. What do you mean by that? 
Well, we've just talked through these five various meanings of the word church. And today, it is very common to think that we can pick and choose which of those five things we want, which type of church we want to subscribe to, and call it a day. That's not the way Scripture presents the church to us. Am I making that point clear? This is the church. This is what the Bible says about the church. And we are to learn from these different types of usages of the term what the nature of God's, Christ's bride is. It's common to, be think, to think that we can be part of the invisible church without being part of a local body. How many of you have met somebody that says they're Christian, but they refuse to go to church? Okay, or is this making sense? The Bible doesn't present it that way. The Bible doesn't say it's the Golden Corral buffet, and you can just come through and do a dollop of whatever you jolly well choose. The church is defined by God's Word. We have to be ruled and live in accordance with God's Word. Okay? <clears throat> so, I want to... Briefly, it's, it's 10 o'clock, but if you claim to be a part of the invisible church, but refuse to yoke yourself to the visible church, it's a mistake. Uh, it's doing something that Jesus didn't even do. He subjected himself, you know? We clean, uh, we clean an office in White House, and there's a cop there that I really like, but, you know, he's one of these guys that fought in Iraq and like, literally, he was, you know, he tells in his story of gunning down people, and, and all of a sudden, he heard days of Elijah, you know, and, and he saw, glory, you know, horses coming down out of heaven, and he's got all these stories, you know. But he refuses to go to church. You know, he's always talking about the gospel, always talking about God. But he, he, he absolutely refuses to have anything to do with any local church. And he's got his reasons, but one of the things I've noticed about him, and this is just, this is true for him, but it's true for, he is as stubborn of a guy to talk to as I've ever met. He tells me stories about days of Elijah and visions coming down in the desert, and I try and tell him one thing from the scripture, and it's like, nope. We can't act this way, right? We need, if we're part of the invisible church, we need to be part of the visible. Okay, if you attend a church each week, if you sit in a pew, but you don't desire to be a part of the invisible church. You just want to look good. There's real problems there. You're not a real part of Christ, okay? You, I'm, I've said we need all five, and now I'm trying to help us see why we need all five. If you attend a church, but you don't care to be an active part of it in any way, if you don't serve, if you don't invest, if you don't give, if you aren't ministered to, and if you don't do ministering, you're missing out on critical components of church life and why God created the church, fellowship. If you attend something that's completely unique and stands on its own and is disconnected from the church at large, that doesn't look like what the church looks like in the New Testament. If you aren't willing to come under the authority and representation of under-shepherds, sinful men that God has provided to care for his flock, then 
you have a faulty understanding of the nature of the church. The church is a hospital, it's not a museum. <clears throat> I want to say that I think for many of us, I, I know that we don't view the church in this way. One of the gifts of God to this church has been the love and the fellowship and the, and the one anotherness that God has allowed to grow here. And that is a wonderful, beautiful thing that we shouldn't take for granted, but that we should nurture in ourselves and in those around us. And we should be grateful for it. Not see it as, oh, we're better than everyone else. God has allowed this to happen, and we should give glory to God to it, but we should also live it out. Both. And I, I guess I want to say as we close that I think most of you'd be with me on all these five things. Um, but, and I, I give thanks for the church often, but you know when I don't, it's because I'm going through something hard. Like it's, it's easier to be grateful and yes to all these five things when, it's, when you're being told yes and not no. You understand? The rub is when it comes in conflict with what we desire. And yet as Christians, we need to set aside our own thinking and our own heart motivations and passion and say, okay, what does the Bible say? I'm going to live in accordance with it and trust God for the outcome. That's really the true test of whether we believe these things we've said about the church. And I hope that you and me will do that. Because it's, it's easy to say yes to these things. Yeah, the church is this, the church is this, I'm all for that, in the easy times. It's in the harder times when what we really believe is tested. And so I hope that you will, with me, work to submit ourselves to what the Bible says. Because more than anything else, we want to be a church that just obeys the Bible. And isn't all about other, everyone else obeying the Bible. Yes, we'd love to see that, and we hope to, to see that and be a part of that work. But it has to start here, right? Okay. Jesus loves the church. He gave himself up for it. Will you? He cherishes it. He nurtures it. Will you? That's what I want to say. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Truth in Life. If you enjoy this series, make sure to subscribe. And remember, this is truth to live by.